is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again, Michael Condon here back with you this week and uh, coming up we hear about September 2023. It was Australia's driest on record and gobsmackingly hot across the planet as well according to one expert. The average amount of rain that fell across the country was 71% less than normal. The Bureau of Meteorology releases these rainfall decile maps. They cover areas in red that have had below average rainfall and it spans from east to west and really quite high up as well. The average amount of rain to fall across Australia this year was just 4.8 millimetres. And we head out to Menindee as well because there's uh, quite a discussion there about the water bill that will be in federal parliament. We'll hear more about that shortly as well. Uh, you can always send us a text here at the country. Our 0467 922 684 is the number to text me here at the country hour. But first up to carbon and five years after the code of conduct was first set up for the carbon industry, the number of companies that are fully compliant has jumped to 85%. The regulation of the carbon market is pretty advanced in Australia compared to other countries, but some projects have been strongly criticised by academics who say they're akin to getting money for old rope. John Connor from the Carbon Market Institute told told David Clawton about the results of a survey that they've just done on compliance. It was a good year. We've got now, um, we've increased... um uh, the number of signatories, um, uh, almost by a third, uh, up to about 36 uh, signatories. That's about 69% of the land-based um, carbon credit projects here in Australia. Uh, and and we're, we're pleased to see that there's um, stronger engagement from um, uh, the, the members and signatories uh, with 85% of them um, assessed as fully compliant uh, compared to just 29% of signatories last year. Right, it's a big increase, but it's quite a new industry, isn't it? And that other 15%, are they just not meeting the um, the standard or are they just haven't filled out the paperwork? Um, we are chasing through a couple of them that are called materially compliant, um, where they, they still say that they'll do this by the end of the year. So some of that is just having the right procedures, making sure that they've got complaints procedures internally, that they're talking with stakeholders, uh, got a stakeholder engagement a couple that, 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 that left um, um, some just shutting down. So a bit of turnover there. And, and I think it's also important when you dig, dig deeper that um, they are looking harder at some of their engagement with Indigenous communities, and that's going to be a big focus this year. And also um, the, uh, the recommendations of the Chubb Review is to look deeper at the free prior informed consent and uh, an issue called conditional registration um, for projects. Um, and they're going to require greater engagement in native title interests. And so um, we were looking at that and going to go deeper this year. Uh, and there's another area around the co-benefits. There would be some of the other environmental and other claims that are, are being made that we'll, we'll need to look a bit uh, closer to, to, again, to make sure that there's either good evidence or even accreditation of some of those claims. And what about complaints? Was that part of this survey or what can you tell us about complaints? To- um, we didn't actually have a compli- formal complaint in the last, last year. There has, there's been one or two that have um, uh, came through the system in the last couple of years, but um, in the last year, not, not, no, um, no one utilised that complaints uh, procedure. Um, the formal one, so there's actually, we, we get um, the signatories to make sure they've got internal complaints procedures, and, and in the first instance, you know, people are pointed there. Uh, but if they have problems um, and with the, the developers, then they... Uh, uh, then they can come through and we've got an independent review panel which looks at those issues. But in the last 12 months, we didn't have that one. 
Mm, wow. I mean, the industry does in Australia, when you compare to what we do here against other countries, our standards are pretty high, but there are still very serious questions being asked about some areas of um, carbon credits and particularly the human-induced regeneration. It was only back in August the ABC spoke to Professor Andrew McIntosh and he was saying that um, that, that, that 80% of those projects, the tree cover has gone nowhere or backwards and, and they're, they're designed, aren't they, to increase the tree cover. So what's, what's going on there? Yeah, well, the industry disputes those um, findings and they're going to the regulator. And this is stuff that's just uh, done by the government, it's not by this code. Um, uh, and we have seen a whole bunch of changes and uh, recommendations from the Chubb Review uh, will mean, and is meaning, a much closer scrutiny um, uh, of HIR projects, but uh, uh, more broadly all projects. Um, there is more. So when you say uh, closer scrutiny, this seems to be like a hot button topic. Who? What's actually happening on the ground to ensure that the tree cover is actually improving, or or they're achieving what they say they're achieving? Yeah, so there's actually a whole framework with auditors um, and uh, uh, that that actually assess and independent do independent audit. And what's actually been established is another independent audit funded by the government is actually going to go through um, the HAR. Uh, projects as they go through um, those that have been through the sort of what I call the first gateway. Um, so they're going to actually be, be looking at that and auditors often get out there on the ground as well. Um, what's been provided and one of the problems has been a lack of transparency where it actually was illegal for the regulator to release what they call some of the carbon estimation area data and so that's now being put online which enables um, um, uh, Professor McIntosh, Professor Law, Andrew McIntosh, to um, do some of that analysis. But what what the industry is doing is providing additional data, and I think this is one of the next reforms that's important: is how do we get up even clearer data? Because there's um, a lot of data that the um, industry provides to the regulator and others, which isn't fully available. Um, to um, external analysts. What about Professor David Eldridge's comments in that August report from the ABC talking about the removal of grazing? Because a lot of projects do hang on that, don't they? They say, you know, we'll stop grazing this country and therefore, the, the, you know, the, the, the vegetation will come back. And he's basically saying that's not really showing up in the research. It's really just all about the rainfall. If you get good rain, you'll get an increase in the vegetation cover. The impact is minimal when you take away grazing. What's your sense of the accuracy of that? Yeah, look, there was a bit of a kicker at the end of his comments there because he wasn't looking at actual some of the regrowth data that um, many in the industry have put forward to, to, to challenge some of that claims around rainfall. So it's a debate. I think it's important. And I think, you know, I think we need to have this greater transparency so we can have an informed debate because there, there are certainly experts on, on other sides. So, um, uh, what so are you seeing data now, are you? And it's publicly accessible data that proves that grazing does have an impact. Yeah, yes, well, I think it's, um, um, it, it, it's, uh, it, there are questions about the dominant impact, but certainly some in the industry have put up data and it's, a, it's available. Um, Climate Friendly have got that on, online as one of them. They actually have done analysis uh, uh, comparing it with rainfall and that there is um, uh, a significant, you know, statistically significant impact there. So, so they've um, tracked the rainfall and they've tracked the removal of grazing, and they think there's an additional impact from gra- from taking the grazing away. 
yeah, managing the grazing. It's not always fully taken away, but um, certainly that um, some of those the land management activities, which is allowing taking away what they call the suppressors of growth and managing that growth, and um, uh, um, are there. So these are claims. There we're in some processes now that we'll be reviewing through an independent. Auditor is, um, has been set up on top of those um, uh, audits provided by the industry itself. How, how have all those questions affected the, the, the industry, do you think? Like, is money still flowing into those projects again? Uh, there is still some. Uh, um, the actual um, method under question has, has ended as of the um, uh, uh, last week. And, um, it's sunsetted under a natural sort of sunsetting provision. And so there are now discussions about a... a a model which will pick up some of those opportunities. John Connor from the Carbon Market Institute, which oversees the operation of the Carbon Code. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 14 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Federal Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young travelled to Menindee last week to meet with a group of locals and to get a tour of the of the area ahead of a vote that could change the way the Murray-Darling Basin is managed. The South Australian holds the balance of power in the Senate and has the leverage to make modifications in the upcoming vote over the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023. Senator Hanson-Young says people living along the Lower Darling were not included during basin discussions the first time around, and she, the first time around, and she'd like to change that. Well, we know that the Murray Darling Basin Plan is not working. It's uh, not going to meet its uh, due dates, and the river system is still in crisis. We've got a river that is still sick after a decade and billions of dollars being spent. As a South Australian, this is important to keep the river alive. It's fundamental to the drinking water of Adelaide, to our environment in South Australia. But here in Menindee, we, we understand, you know, these guys live at the bottom of the, of the Darlings. They understand the impacts of living at the bottom of the river. Too much water is still being extracted. Not enough water is being saved for the environment. Our fish are dying, our birds are uh, in trouble and our river needs more help. What was the sort of process to get you here today? Yeah. Well, uh, the parliament is uh, in the midst of debating the minister's proposal to kick the can down the road. The due dates have been missed, they want an extension for the homework uh, and they need to get that past the Senate. Um, I'm not interested in rubber stamping anything. I want to see a real change and a real uh, commitment to making sure we fix things. I don't want to see another wasted decade. I don't want to see another wasted year. I don't want to see another waste of uh, money and, uh, and, and and community sentiment. The community here, uh, I've been here before. I've, I was, was out here in the first fish kill. I saw how devastating it was to the environment and to the community itself. And I wanted to make sure that these the people here, the community here, uh, have a voice in Canberra too. What are you hearing from locals? What have they been telling you? Well, they're desperate for things to change. They don't want more of the same. Uh, they want a commitment to environmental flows and real water coming down the river so that they can keep the lakes alive, they can make sure there's no more fish kills, keep feeding the soul of the community. I think, and rightly so, people in this community feel abandoned. They were abandoned the first time round 
uh, in the negotiations over the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They were abandoned during the fish kills and they don't want to be abandoned again. Uh, and I understand uh, why they feel frustrated. Um, but what they're, what they're telling me really clearly today is that getting environmental water secured, real water delivered into the system uh, is what's needed. It's, you know, what's good for the environment is good for the people. And it's pretty simple. On that, um, I'm sure it's been mentioned a few times, um, the Northern Basin of New South Wales as well. Did you sort of have much background knowledge on the Northern Basin? Obviously, South Australian, mm. you'd be all over what's happening in the South, but up yes. here in the North? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been um, you know, following this issue for a long time. I was uh, in the Parliament debating the Murray-Darling Basin Plan when it first came in uh, over a decade ago. And I was worried then that uh, the environment was sold short and that downstream communities were being set up to fail. And sadly, a decade later, it, that is what we're seeing. We're seeing the fruits of that. Too much greed. There's too much greed. And when you go the, uh, further and further upstream, more water's being extracted than is fair, and it's, le it's leaving the river sick down below, and whether that's in South Australia uh, or here. And uh, I think we've really got to tackle that. The whole point of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was an agreement that we had to save the river so that it could flow. We had to save the river so that everyone could rely on it. Um, but, you know, industry, corporate irrigation, big business, political interests have had too much say over where the water goes and who gets it and it's small communities and the environment that, have, that, have, that are being sold out. Yeah, speaking to, actually I was on the phone to someone from Renmark Irrigation, the Central Irrigation and South Australian Murray Irrigators mm. Council, and um, all of them sort of mentioned over-extraction in the Northern Basin mm. as well and something to put, sort of watch heading into the potential changes mm. for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Um, is that something you've heard yes. a lot as a South Australian? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we know that... Uh, it's easy to be greedy when you're at the front of the system. When you're first in line at the queue, you can take as much as you want. If you're, if you're at the end of the queue, uh, you can only take what's left. There needs to be a much fairer share of the water resources. The environment's got to get the cut it needs to survive. Communities need to make sure we have clean drinking water. And then, and then we can think about what type of uh, what's uh, what type of usage goes to, you know, corporate and uh, industry interests? Federal Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young, who was visiting Menindee last week, well, Menindee local Graham Crab was one of the group that invited Senator Sarah Hanson Young from the Greens to Menindee, and he told Bill Ormond it was good to have someone on the ground who wanted to know more about the Darling River and the flows downstream. Yeah, look, I think that it's, it was about the Darling River today more so than like. So representation from across the Darling and to highlight the fact of the importance to get flows down the Darling, I think to break down that myth of uh, the Darling goes dry all the time. It's not a running river where history shows, the data shows that that's not the case. And over-extraction again has been highlighted in the Chief Science Report and there's a wonderful opportunity there um, with the 450 gigs and some other rule changes to, to get some more water flowing down through the through the river and all the way to South Australia. It's something that would benefit um, all, all water users really from this end of the world, from Burke down. Uh, and the environmental aspects of that are, are quite clear. I think we've all discovered that. Just going on about that that point in particular, um, 
currently as it stands, the Southern Basin is doing the majority of the heavy lifting, is that right? And you'd like some of the North to do a bit more of that? Yeah, I think that's the, the case. And definitely uh, we go through multiple reports, Bill, going back to, um, you know, the Vitesse report, the, the Academy of Science report, um, now the, the Chief Science report. They, the, all those reports have got a similar theme, over extraction in the Northern Basin. So there's two things around that. The priority of water use to be recognised, which again has been highlighted in the Chief Science report, and then um, the ability to get environmental water to flow from the north to the south and, and properly connect the, the systems. Just look at... Uh, the nursery as we stand here at Menindee with um, with the golden perch and the cod that can be produced in these areas and not being able to get them out into the broader basin, uh, it's an ecological failure really and a failure on the basin plan. So it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to, to try and address some of those issues. Yeah, and do you think there is a way forward that you can sort of strike that balance between the northern basin here, the southern basin and all, in, all those in between? Oh, with the old saying, it's been mentioned heaps of time, isn't it? Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting over. Um, but I think there's been a much more conciliatory approach to, to how we get around this. I think there's concessions that the Darling should be running more often, the Darling Barker should be running more often. We shouldn't end up in the, the dire situations that we've had, as history shows, it, it should be running. So, look, I think there's some concessions up the north that we're going to be in, a, um, that, that changes need to be made. And, and uh, certainly the state politicians have shown a an inclination to, to head that direction as well. Sort of casting our eye a bit forward, um, the New South Wales government response to the fish kill report is coming out and you'd hope that it would mention quite a few of those things as well? Oh, look, you, 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 fingers crossed it's going to take on all the recommendations from the fish kill report. We talk about emergency services, the response about that. There's some issues about that in, in far west communities as well from a from, uh, from a road crash rescue point of view, so there's that side of it, and then we come back to the ecological side of it, um, and certainly they've done a lot of work in that. And I think, grateful from the community point of view, the time and effort that they put into coming out, and um, as discussed today, I was touch emotional myself and others too, said that the, the reading of the executive summary um, brought on some, some, some yeah, emotional responses, I suppose, to the fact that they, actually, they had listened, they understood, and, and hopefully we've got another ally there to try and push the... Push the, the the, um, the Darling Barker into a better place. Kate McBride is a farmer and researcher and water advocate and she was also on the ground in Menindee for the visit. Kate believes it's an important step to get those who are voting on the Murray-Darling Basin bill coming up shortly to visit areas like Menindee. The Greens hold a really important vote when it comes to the upcoming bill, the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023. And for her to actually be coming out and being really engaged, asking all the right questions, is incredible to see. It's a long trip for her to come out here. Um, you know, it's hard enough to get the people that represent our area out here, and yet we've got a senator from South Australia who represents the Greens portfolio for water. Um, really exciting and, yeah, hopefully good things to come. Yeah, and why was it important to get her here? I know you said she holds the balance of power, but... Could you sort of flesh that out a bit more? Yeah, so it's one thing, I think, to actually tell Sarah what's going on out here, but for her to see and put her feet on the ground and understand what's going on out here. In terms of this upcoming bill, of course, Labor has put a bill up and the Greens hold a really important um, like balance of power in the Senate. They also have to work with David Pocock, but then also probably Jackie Lambie or One Nation to pass this bill. So the Greens hold a really important um, you know, vote on this legislation it means that they have the opportunity to put amendments up and maybe areas where the Labor government has unfortunately forgotten or maybe not considered the Darling Barker enough, they have the opportunity to actually rectify that. And we do feel like, you know, the forgotten people out here are on a bit of a forgotten river, unfortunately. So to have Sarah out here 
feet on the ground, understanding what's going on is absolutely invaluable. Yeah, do you think she brings an interesting perspective, being from South Australia as well? She gets, you know, she sees the tale of how everything turns out in the end, but what did you make of that? Absolutely. I think, you know, we've always had a bit of a, an, an interesting relationship with South Australia in terms of our lakes relationship with them, but also because South Australia is at the bottom of the Murray system and we are at the bottom of the Darling system. And so despite the fact that we have kind of different problems, some of them are quite similar in terms of water flow and making sure that our rivers are healthy because rivers die from the mouth up. We've heard Sarah say that in the past and, and people have said it in the past. But this is sort of the, the end of the Darling Barker River, and so our river dies from here. And I think to sort of highlight that to her as well, that, you know, we're in different parts of Australia, but we have um, similar issues, um, and to have her on board, um, you know, hopefully fighting for the Menindee region is incredible. Um, you've seen a lot, a lot of people come and go, a lot of promises, a lot of reports come by. Um, do you think there's a real... Do you feel like there's a real sense that there could be some sort of change in the air as well? Absolutely. This bill that is currently before the Parliament is probably the most important piece of water legislation since the Basin Plan back in 2012. And really it's about how we deliver the Basin Plan, um, this new bill is. And so this is a really pivotal moment for our river and for the Murray-Darling as a whole moving forward. I do feel like now is the time where our forgotten river can be acknowledged in this new sort of bill moving forward and making sure that river water is flowing down our rivers because our river is sick and unfortunately the basin plan hasn't addressed that. We do feel like a bit of a neglected part of the river um, and maybe other parts of the river have benefited at the expense of us. We're almost a bit of a sacrificial lamb. So to try and rectify that issue, move forward, um, yeah, I can't wait to see what happens in the coming months as this bill passes um, both the lower and upper houses. In, in sort of like a morbid sort of way, do you think it's taken the fact that you've had the fish kill during drought and then the fish kill during flood to really illustrate the fact that the river's sick either way? I think certainly um, that's helped highlight the causes um, that are happening. It's been so much more than that, though. This community has been fighting for longer than I've been alive to make sure that we're getting water down this river. It has been a long battle um, to try and get to this point here now. Finally, we are being heard, and certainly, you know, the issues like the dry river and, and multiple mass fish kills, yes, they helped further our cause, but they did come at an expense of our community and the health of it so certainly yeah it has had an impact um, and I'm really hopeful that moving forward that we can see some water flow down our river and um, try and get this darling barker a bit healthier than she is today. Kate McBride is a farmer researcher and water advocate she was there for that visit in Menindee last week well Badger Bates was also there and uh, he spent time talking to Sarah Hanson Young about uh, his views from the Indigenous community as an elder there he says the river is, signif is significant for all Australians. Some of the things I meant to the Senator was we should not be buying water back because we got native title here Bargandy people had native title all over this country our country but they took our rights away for water, and without water, what's a good la uh, land without water? They made them take that back to us like they took the Barker away, because I say I got three mothers, I had three mothers, my mother had brought me into the world, my grandmother reared me up, and the darling Barker had fed me. The two other two mothers have passed on, but the darling Barker's here and I'll fight for her. And it's just unfair that people got to meet, cry for the fish when they die and battle with no water and there's no employment for 
the young people and if we don't get water back here there'll be no future for the young the younger generation doesn't matter what color you are we all need water another thing i know we need development on the river system but i just want people to remind people we're standing in a place on one side of this Menindee outlet little at Menin, little Menindee creek they call it on the western side southwestern side of the creek uh, you had Sturt camp and you seen Aboriginal people, black people up and on the river and on the north side up towards Menindee you had Mitchell's camp so in this spot is very significant not only to black people but to white people all the heritage is here but no one is listening and about this lakes is that no one is listening the heritage is here whether you're black or white and it's got to keep going the future generation for the kids. It's Badger Bates, Barkindji man, who was there at the meeting with Sarah Hanson Young, who was visiting Menindee last week. You're listening to the Country Hour. Getting quite a few uh, texts coming through. Uh, first of all, on the carbon, someone saying instead of putting uh, carbon into the ground, uh, wouldn't be better off turning the carbon into protein instead, making the plants work harder to take up more carbon out of the atmosphere because it counts the because the uh, plants release the carbon back when the grasses are dying off, says Kim in Goulburn. And um, on the water debate, someone's, uh, Dave's texted in to say yet more words from another politician on water. Let's see if Sarah Hanson-Young matches those words in action because uh, Dave says the Murray-Darling is in a shocking condition and it needs help. And um, a few uh, other texts coming through. Uh, someone saying, let the, live, let the rivers run, let the nature live, showcase fish and... Uh, the life of uh, bugs, insects, spiders, ants, and uh, they say stop irrigation of corporate farming and um, tax evasion farming as well. So that one from Margie. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour shortly. We'll have a look at the record September weather, record worldwide and record here in Australia for uh, the lack of uh, rainfall. Uh, We've got some figures on that coming up shortly and we'll talk to the Bureau as well about uh, what's coming up in the next week. But before we do that, it's time to talk to Adam Storey who's got the news headlines. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. As you can imagine, it's uh, all Israel uh, still. Uh, The death toll uh, in Israel has now been put at 700. Uh, The uh, Israeli government has launched uh, basically a series of airstrikes uh, since this all kicked off. Uh, More than 400 are dead in Gaza. There's an emergency meeting going on in New York York of the UN Security Council. Uh, Meanwhile, 260 bodies were removed from the site of a uh, music festival uh, near Gaza. Um, and an Australian man was caught up in that. He managed to escape. Uh, him and his friends jumped in the car as soon as they heard explosions. Uh, he spoke to uh, ABC Radio uh, Melbourne uh, this morning. Uh, and the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, uh, says Parliament House will be lit up in support of Israel tonight and also the Opera House in Sydney uh, is going to uh, be lit up in blue and white. Uh, the main... Um, uh, bridge in Brisbane uh, was lit up in Israel's uh, colours uh, last night. Now, in Sydney, they're investigating some reports of uh, basically celebrations by some members of um, the uh, community uh, with fireworks uh, going off and that sort of thing. Um, given Australia's position on this, uh, it's at all, I don't know what the police can do, mm. uh, but... 
anyway. Mm. Uh, the other big news, which sort of um, a lot of people, I think, uh, probably missed, was the uh, uh, earthquake in western mm. Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, more than 2,000 people have died there. Uh, magnitude 6.3 quake and a series of strong aftershocks. Uh, people have been digging through the rubble with their bare hands. Um, I saw some pictures yeah. of that. It yeah. would reduce the town to rubble. Yeah. I, I couldn't yeah. see a building when they panned no. around at all, the and BBC's. They said, These are very old yeah. traditional buildings, yeah. mud and brick, yeah, that's uh, right. basically. Mm. Yeah, so not much left. But, I mean, normally that's probably what we'd be talking about for most of the day, but given the situation in Israel, it's yeah. sort of... Yeah. But uh, we will... Uh, I mean, the situation could, in Israel was such an uh, intelligence failure. It may, they're talking about it may be the end of Benjamin and Netanyahu. Could be, yeah. Mm. Uh, in other uh, uh, news, uh, Hong Kong's had to shut its schools again and they've closed the stock exchange. People told to stay indoors. The remnants of Typhoon Koinu uh, has caused flooding across the city. It's also issued a little landslide warning uh, with very many areas at risk after heavy rains. And back home... Uh, there'll be some uh, school students going through some major withdrawals today. <laughs> They're not allowed to have their phones with them. They uh, have to put the phones in the lockers or pouches. What? What? Yeah, in the way into school. <laughs> right. I don't know how they'll cope, you know. This is... Mm. How could you? <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, the indig- but, but, the but, indignance but. of it all, that's right. <laughs> oh, dearie me, yes. Uh, uh, very funny. <laughs> but I think it actually does assist their learning when they're not on their phones all the time. I think it might. <laughs> 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 might actually make a bit of sense. And not betting on the fourth at Ramba during the lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the well, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> my dad's account. access to that. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a problem yeah. as well. It is a problem. It yeah. is a problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's happening. It's happening right now. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, and they're not allowed to yeah, access them at lunchtime or recess either. So uh... <clears throat> they're locked up for the whole day. I'd say, yeah, I'd say so. Mm. I'd say lunchtime's probably... So they might actually have to talk to each other. I think lunchtime's when the trouble starts. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Might have to interact in in an appropriate social way. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks, Adam. Who knows what the kids get up to. (laughs) Yeah, I know, those kids. In my day... It's 25 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You unpark at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. So it uh, looks like fairly fine across most of the state for the next few days or so. Is that is that what we're looking at? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, but we will see a significant cold front moving across the state on Thursday. That might bring some weather. Uh, perhaps not much rainfall, but uh, I'll talk more about the, this cold front later. But I'll start with the uh, short term first. Uh, starting from today, we expect some showers or uh, isolated showers or thunderstorms in the states far west due to uh, the development of an inland trough. Uh, but uh, these showers or thunderstorms will be only affecting the f- far west, I mean, less populated areas of the state. And also, uh, we expect some coastal shower or two along the su- southern half of the coast today due to uh, another trough crossing along the su- uh, south coast and Illawarra today, um, maybe heading north and with uh, some 
the moderate southerly winds in the wake. And maximum temperatures will be up, uh, mainly about mid-20s in many parts. So um, not, nothing hot, not, nothing really that cold, just moderate temperatures. And then we expect similar weather patterns to prevail on Tuesday with just a shower or two extending a bit further northern, part, uh, northern and central part of the coast as the coastal trough makes its way to the north. Uh, to the north. And then on Wednesday, we expect generally dry weather conditions, uh, but a warming trend as uh, these trough features will be washing away while warm northerly winds develop ahead of the next cold front. And then, then some interesting weather are expected on Thursday as a significant cold front uh, moving across the southern and the western part of the state, reaching the central east by late Thursday evening. And with this, uh, we expect some uh, windy conditions, uh, fresh northwesterly winds uh, 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 turning uh, cool and gusty southwesterly winds uh, in the wake of the ch- uh, cold front, and maybe heat in the north and the east ahead of the cold front with the maximum temperatures reaching in mid-30s ahead, and uh, with the... Um, uh, this heat uh, combined with the gusty uh, and dry and gusty northwesterly winds will probably probably create elevated fire danger conditions as well. So uh, be watchful of uh, the return of fire dangers uh, on Thursday. And then uh, with the passage of the cold front, we expect gusty showers or thunderstorms along the front uh, across the south, southern inland and southeast. And, uh, but don't expect much rainfall out of this because uh, this system will be moving fairly fast and then um, once the cold front moves through we expect a significant significant temperature drops maybe about 10 degrees in the uh, in the west maybe 10 to 15 degrees along the southern half of the coast and then uh, once the cold front moves through we may expect a return of another cool weather uh, cool temperatures and then there might be Further coolings during the weekend into early new week with the second cold front on Sunday. Okay, so this cold front coming through, bringing temperatures down, but not much rain with it, though. That's right, yeah. Mm. And what about the next front? Do we know if that might have some rain in it, too, or not? Uh, Probably not much. I mean, very much similar as the first cold front, yes. Mm, Yeah, okay. And in the meantime, uh, well, staying, staying fairly dry for most of it. That's right, yes. So this cold front will be significant in terms of uh, temperature changes it brings and maybe some elevated fire dangers. But as far as the rainfalls are concerned, yeah, probably not much because it doesn't, uh, those fronts don't have a tropical connection. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we'll watch out and see what, uh, what happens for the, the weekend for Sunday. Thanks for that, Shuan. My pleasure. It's 20 minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Israel declares war in response to deadly attacks by Hamas. The region is bracing for further bloodshed. We bring you the latest. What does it mean for the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, which was already facing widespread protests? And villagers in Afghanistan searching for the dead and injured after an earthquake strikes the west of the country. Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 
And staying with some weather news, in September 2023 was Australia's driest on record and gobsmackingly hot across the planet. That's according to one expert. The average amount of rain that fell across the country was 71% less than normal. National weather reporter Tyne Logan explained to Kit Mocken just how dry it has been. Oh, really, when you look at the map, it's, it's been really widespread. The Bureau of Meteorology releases these rainfall decile maps. They cover areas in red that have had below average rainfall, and it spans from east to west and really quite high up as well. The average amount of rain to fall across Australia this year was just 4.8 millimetres. I was trying to get a visual of just how low that was, and uh, you know, I managed to fit it in a tiny little syringe, so I, I don't think, you know, it, it requires too much imagination to figure out just how small that is. Very, very small amounts. So what particular areas of the country are most affected at the moment? Yeah, so, I mean, there's this really dark red area, particularly for September around the southeastern parts of the country, and they were really dry before this as well. So during winter, we had this kind of like, it's almost like a big chunk out of um, big bite out of Western Australia that was looking really dry, uh, particularly along the West Coast, and then also along the coast of New South Wales and spreading into Victoria. And those are the places that have had a really dry September too. What's behind it, Tyne? What's driving it? Yes, there's always a bit going on when we're talking about the weather, but there are a few key reasons it's been happening. So one of them is the major climate driver, El Nino. It really kicked into gear in September, and that helps drive rain away from eastern Australia. There's a similar phenomenon known as a positive Indian Ocean dipole that's underway on the other side of the country in the Indian Ocean. That also is linked to dry weather really across most of Australia and there's also climate change which has seen a trend of reduced rainfall across southern Australia in the cooler months of the year. So all of those things combined plus a bit of natural variability and we've had the result um, that we've seen. Farmers have been a bit of a, a canary in the coal mine about this dryness recently even though we have seen a really weird mix of fires and floods mm-hmm. in Victoria this week and we are going to hear about some crop saving rains in New South in just a tick but weather-wise is there anything good around the corner for them or is this going to continue? I mean uh, not really. Um, I, I really wish I could say that you know it was going to turn around and it would be the perfect, the perfect amount of rain to finish. And you know, fingers crossed. Maybe it, maybe it still is, but um, the the odds are very firmly in the favour of a dry rest of spring and a warm rest of 2023. Mm. So yeah, what we've had so far, the tr- all signs are that that's going to keep going. So in addition to being uh, the dry September for Australia. September was also the world's hottest. Can you tell me anything about that? Oh, it, it's really remarkable how many records we've been breaking this year. So July was the world's hottest month on record. Um, and just ever since then, it's been consistently hotter than ever before. And September was off the charts. It can, it, I guess it's a bit hard to explain without seeing this graph, but if you can, if anyone wants to, you know, look it up in their search engine and just have a look at it, you can see just how how far above any other September on record the global temperatures were, and and Australia was a big part of that as well. You know, it was it, we were the third hottest, it was our third hottest September overall on average, but Western Australia, New South Wales, and Victoria all had their hottest September days on record. 
In New South Wales, the average maximum temperatures were five degrees above average for September. So it's been really hot here and it's been really hot across the globe. One climate scientist actually um, tweeted it and described it as absolutely gobsmackingly bananas in his professional opinion, which is not the kind of normal scientific language that you hear, but I think it, it puts into context just how hot it's been. That's the ABC's weather reporter, Tyne Logan, talking about uh, what happened in September and some of those records that were broken, not just here in Australia, but uh, overseas as well. Talking, Going back to the uh, water and the Darling River and uh, uh, Sarah Hanson-Young's visit uh, yesterday, or not yesterday, last week, um, getting a few texts in on that. Sherlock says it's just a few years after the Northern Basin Review and it's obvious how corrupted that process was, says Sherlock. Uh, but um, another person has uh, texted in uh, on that same issue uh, to talk about uh, the situation with the uh, with the fish kills, and um, they're saying that um, yeah, they've never heard so much green propaganda on the ABC. If you think that the 450 gigalitres that they were talking about in those interviews will change to fish kills and drought-proof proof the river, then you are all being misled, says uh, Richard at uh, Narrabri. And um, some other people were texting in saying, well, you know, warm, dry September, uh, that happens quite a lot. So they're making that point as well. But um, yes, uh, you need to maybe look at uh, some of the charts as well uh, around what happened around the rest of the world too. It's a quarter to one on the country hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, as livestock farmers are being hit hard with low sale prices and demand for livestock feed is high, the pressure is on for crops this season to deliver high yields. Sydney cash grain broker at Stonex Australia, Stephen Meyer, was recently travelling through the far west of New South Wales and he says he was pretty impressed by what he saw in terms of cropping. He caught up with uh, Lily McCure to chat about the innovation of growing crops in low rainfall marginal areas and the difference in Australian and international agriculture. Look, I think Australians farmers uh, are doing a fantastic job. Again, I was stunned on, ba- on these, some of these back roads to find some wheat and barley fields middle of nowhere. They're not going to be big crops. I think, you know, a ton of the hectare kind of thing down there. But I think that's, that's an okay kind of yield uh, for wheat and barley in those regions. What do you think the farmers are doing out here? You said that you weren't really expecting to see many crops. What do you think they're doing to get these crops out of the ground? Look, I was fortunate uh, to know some of the farmers. We popped in and, and spoke to some of the farmers. Um, you know, they're doing things like summer weed spraying, uh, soil conservation, uh, uh, wa- increasing water utilization through summer weed spraying, as I said. And um, But I think also, like, they're doing crop rotations. Uh, some of these guys are leaving the ground fallow for a year. Um, they're also not, like, robbing the land with straw. A lot of these guys used to be uh, sheep and cropping. And I think what's really put these guys into high gear is going 100% cropping. I think there was a lot of compaction with the sheep and cattle back in the day. I mean, obviously, there's some fields which are going off from this lack of rain. But, it, you know, the crops are good. But there's some regions of the fields where you can see that they are dying already. But there's also most of the fields are, are okay, if not better than average for the region. Your family have got a property in Canada. How does it compare to this part of Australia? Obviously, the Canadians always claim to have invented zero-till farming. Uh, and then the Australians adopted it many years later. 
but look, uh, I think Australians and the Canadians are uh, both are very good friends and are like neighbors to each other. And I think we're fortunate to have each other. I know there's a lot of information sharing going on between the Canadians and Australians. On my family farm at home at the moment, we've got two Australians taking the crop off there. Uh, we're, we're done on the wheat crops, and we're currently about 75% through the canola crop at home, which has been yielding much better than expected as well. We've had a very dry summer, uh, as some of you, may, as some of your listeners will know. Um, but look, somehow, again, we're growing crops in those regions with, with uh, zero till and... Uh, conserving moisture uh time i think timing is so critical in agriculture more than ever um you know we we plant our whole crop at home now in in a two-week window and i think you look at some of australia's top farmers they don't wait for the rain to fall they plant it on a calendar uh i think most most farmers plant april fool's days when they start planting whether it's going to rain or not who knows but they plant on the calendar and i think that's been the big difference for australian canadian farmers is they plant per the calendar yeah, we've all got fantastic gear nowadays. You know, we, we can cover some of these machines can do, uh, you know, harvest wheat at 80 tons an hour, the brand new John Deere X9 harvester that's come out. So, yeah, good machinery. We're all, And I think the other thing that's happened is the new generation of farmers don't want to work for free anymore. I see that with my brothers and my sister at home. They want to make a good wage. And I think, you know, back in the day, the farmers' sons, kids would work for nothing. But now it's like, no, we want to, we want to take our wives and kids out to somewhere nice for dinner as well. I think that's really changed in agriculture. It's like people are starting to value their time much more than ever, which I think is a good thing. Out here in the far west, it's mostly sheep country. Do you think there is going to be a need for crops in areas that isn't typically cropping country to meet grain demands in other areas? Well, actually, interesting you say that, and I... My wife sometimes gets upset with me because I, I do follow a lot of back roads and uh, pull over in wheat fields. But I saw this one field near Menindi, which had, I think, the spacing. Well, the other thing that what that farmers do is they increase the row spacing on their crops. The less rainfall, the wider the row spacing is the general rule of thumb. And I think this wheat field was planted on 24-inch spacing. And in between, it had plastic plastic between the wheat row, rows, which I've never seen in a wheat field. I've seen it in, like, horticulture where they put plastic sheets down. But this farmer in your mind, I don't know who he is, which I'm, I'm keen to find out who he is. He's probably on this, on this program at the moment. But he had plastic sheets between the wheat rows, and I assume he was doing drip line irrigation underneath the plastic sheets. But he's also put the plastic between the rows to prevent ev- uh, tr- uh, evaporation. Who would have ever thought that we could grow wheat in these areas is mind-blowing. Are you seeing more innovation like this in parts of Australia where, yeah, typically you wouldn't see cropping country? Well, I think I think high commodity prices from the last two three years, especially after the Ukraine war. You know, you got wheat prices on the ASX today is about four hundred ten bucks a ton. Canola track is about seven hundred at the moment. High commodity prices means that farmers can go and grow crops in more marginal areas. So, you know, if people want to, if pe- people globally are paying more for food, I think the FAO food index uh, is probably an all time high. You got rice prices at the moment record high in the world. You got countries like India banning rice exports, and they're buying all the lentils and desi chickpeas from Australia to that they can. So definitely, I know that people are pushing production boundaries. You know, I know that you know a lot of my good farmers. I know they farm out of Brewarna on the floodplains there, and all yeah. You know, and they, I think that they have a mindset, and even like places northwest of Walgett, like places like Aduga, which nobody would ever thought of cropping, but they're cropping it now. And they go and farmers now know. Okay, look, they know that probably. 
two out of five years is going to be a failure. But two out of the five is probably going to be re- really good, and one of the five is maybe going to be half okay or break even, you know, in the more marginal areas. Uh, they already expect, when they're planting a crop, they expect that uh, a certain percentage of failure. That's Cash Grain Broker at Stonex Australia, Stefan Meyer, speaking with Lillian McCurry, has uh, been doing a tour of uh, the cropping out in the far west. It's time for markets. <laughs> First up, let's go to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. There was a similar number of 19,360 lambs at Bendigo. Quality was mostly good. After the rain last week, new season lamb supply continues to flow in, taking up the majority with 12,400 offered. Many runs of young, heavy lambs and very good trade weights. The usual buyers attended operated with increasing demand. The market was generally $3 to $8 stronger, especially on the heavy and the trade weight lambs as they range in average from 470 to 530 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Restockers pay from 31 to $125. Extra heavy old merino lambs made to 152 The better younger lamb, merino lambs made from 92 to $96. Good hoggets sold from 50 to 91 Light young lamb suppressors made from 29 to $64. Light tray weights selling between 66 to 96 Tray weight new season lamb sold from 100 to $128, averaging from an estimated 505 to 520 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy lambs 25 to 26 kilograms were from 125 to $143. Heavy export calories sold from 130 to 152. The extra heavy lamb, young lamb sold from 153 to $168 from 480 to 520 cents. This has been Tim Delaney reporting for MLA Bendigo. Let's go to Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers bounced up to 15,700 sheep and lambs after a fortnight's break. Quality and buyer demand lifted with additional processes joining the regular group this week. Prices were stronger across the entire sale with new season lambs jumping up $20 on average. New season heavy trade lambs gained up to $24, selling from $103 to $140. Heavy lambs lifted $13, $135 to $156. Extra heavy export types, $153 to $160. New season light lambs to the processor sold from $47 to $77. Old lambs are still in good supply, heavy and extra heavy Type selling from one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and sixty-two dollars. Mutton prices were stronger, up to up to twenty-six dollars. Heavy crossbred ewes forty-four to fifty-eight dollars. Heavy merino ewes forty to fifty-eight dollars. And trade sheep sold from twenty-eight to forty dollars. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Let's go to Dubbo sheep and lambs. Numbers were back by 3,500 for yarding and 17,500 lambs for the first sale in a fortnight. It was a pretty good quality yarding with fair numbers of good trade weight new season lambs and old lambs, along with some very good heavyweight lambs. Trade weight new season lambs were around firm, selling from 67 to 105 to average 435 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs were up to $15 dearer, with the 20 to 24 kilogram lambs selling from 70 to 112 to average between 370 and 420 cents. Heavyweight lambs were 12 dearer with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 107 to 135, while the lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 158 to 169, to average between 450 and 490 cents. Merino lambs were up to $20 dearer with trade weights selling from 35 to 98. Lambs to the restockers were 5 dearer, with the new season lambs going back to the paddock selling from 22 to 71. Hoggets were dearer selling to $80. 
We have the balance of the lambs and 9,200 muttons still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to Wagga Cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 3,760 due to last Monday's public holiday. Quality was fair to very good with good numbers of stock grass finished. The cattle market continued to struggle as numbers outpaced demand. Overall, prices softened with the exception of cows. Steers back to the paddock tumbled 30 cents, 160 to 215 for the lighter weights. Feeder steers were back 10 to 15 cents, 178 to 230. Trade steers 160 to 230 with a single steer out to 298. Trade heifers 146 to 225. Feeder heifers 151 to $2 for the medium weights. Heavy steers were back 5 to 8, 180 to 256. Bullocks softened 2 to 3, $2 to 237. Heavy cows gained 2 to 5, 159 to 185. And the middle run jumped 10, 120 to 166. I'm Leon Ducks for MLA. Let's go to Forbes cattle now. Numbers fell this sale with agents yarding 968 head. Quality was fair with an excellent run of finished cattle on offer, along with the planer and secondary types. The usual bars are present and competing in a fairly steady market. Yearling steers held firm to a couple easier, with those to feed selling from 150 to 225. Finished types to processors receiving from 170 to 240. The heifer portion was also fairly steady, with feeders paying 140 to 170, while those to processors received from 140 to 200 cents a kilo. Heavy steers and bullocks sold from 188 to 220. Grown heifers reached 180 cents a kilo, and cows jumped 20 cents from the last sale a fortnight ago, with heavy two score from 115 to 157, 3 and 4 score from 155 to 180. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And to Tamworth Cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers continued to flow with 1,855 head penned, a good supply of yearlings and cows with an increased supply of heavy ground steers. Overall quality was fair to good as was condition, the usual buyers in attendance. Comparing to a fortnight ago, the market for yearling steers to restock and feed was a little brighter with the lightweight selling from 160 to 220 cents. Medium and heavyweight saw little change, 155 to 237 and 208 to 242 cents a kilo respectively. Cheap a trends for heavy yearlings to restock and feed. Light and medium weights sold from 109 to 192 cents. Heavy weights to 198. Three score trade 130 to 248 cents a kilo. Heavy ground steers to process sold to cheaper trends 160 to 226 with milk tooth to 233 cents. Cheaper trends for ground heifers with three and four score sea muscles 126 to 225. Weaker demand saw a cheaper cow market with medium weight two and three scores 90 to 145 cents. The Heavy three and four scores sold from 130 to 168 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's the market information for today. And uh, just letting you know that uh, Country Hour will be heading out on the Wallaby for the next few days or so. We'll be uh, broadcasting, doing some outside broadcast from Wallenbeam. Uh, from a field day there, uh, looking at how the crops are faring. Also hearing about the latest research as well from some of Australia's uh, well-known researchers from the CSIRO, etc. Also we'll be looking at agricultural technology the following day. That's the focus of a conference being held in Wagga. And then we're heading out to Condoblin to uh, find out how the season's going there and uh, heading out to uh, Central West Farming Systems and uh, getting a sense of what's happening at Condoblin as well. So... Uh, out and about for the next few days. You're listening to the Country Hour. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Technology working, of course. From Wallenbean, it's coming up to one o'clock.